I'd like for you to turn uh, to the a little epistle uh, of Second Peter. The, the text is chapter three, verses eight through ten. Second Peter, chapter three, verses eight through ten. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be consumed, be dissolved, be burned up. There are times in our lives and periods in our history when the irreligious folks seem to have the best arguments, when the greatest evidence seems to be on their side, when the things, when the reasons for not believing seem more heavy than the assurances of faith. Now that's nothing new because there were people back in the early periods of the Christian century who had a problem with that. Um, impatient with the apparent slowness of God concerning His promises, and, and the seeming absence of God from history and life, the scoffers were coming out of the woodworks and they were saying, where is the sign of his coming? I mean, it's no better than it used to be. God has made all these promises and nothing has happened and everything continues as before. What good is it for us to be a believer? And, and so, the author of this book moved in on that mood and wrote this epistle because of that. And he said, don't let this one thing escape you. I mean, you gotta remember this, if nothing else, that God is not slow concerning his promises. God is not willing that any should perish and he's willing to wait a thousand years as though it were one day in order for his people, for people to, to repent and to respond to his love. And so this text reminds us of three things. It reminds us that the ways of God are inscrutable. God is not slow concerning his promises as some men count slowness or as some people perceive it or as some people understand it. 
And I didn't say that God was not slow concerning the fulfillment of his promise as some people count slowness, you see. And, and you understand what he's saying. He's saying is this, that there are two ways. There is man's way of doing things and his understanding and perception of it and there is God's way of doing things and his understanding and perception and most of the time, they're not the same. For the prophet was right, I think, when he said, I, I know he was right, that God's ways are higher than man's ways and God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. And the prophet says that God is not like anything else that is. He is not like, exactly like anything or anybody. So that means that, the, that God and his ways are beyond the field of human knowledge and God and his ways are incomprehensible. Now the problem that most of us have, the greatest problem that I have in life, perhaps, is the, is the tendency or the temptation to, to interpret what is happening to me in light of my understanding of what is happening to me. Um, my, my biggest problem is that I judge what is happening to me in life and my understanding a lot of times of what God is doing, I judge that on the basis of, of my understanding of it. And it's a terrible, th terrible thing to do, really. The, the problem with these folks is the same problem you and I have, and that is that we think God is going to act a certain way because that's the way we would do it. That's the way we would act. That's how we would respond. And so we say, well, now see, God, uh, an hour ago, I asked him to do something, or, you know, uh, on my calendar, it's been a year, and God has not done anything, and we judge everything that happens to us on the basis of our understanding and our interpretation of what is happening to us. And the ways of God are not like the ways of man. They're inscrutable. They're beyond our understanding, comprehension. Nicodemus said to Jesus in this conversation that they were having, um, and God told him, uh, Jesus told him about the new birth, and Nicodemus said, how can this be? I mean, he wanted a logical explanation. He wanted to be able to fit this concept that Jesus was giving him directly from God. He wanted to fit that into his little box of brains. He wanted to understand that, just like that we are. We want to reduce God and the way God does into definable and explainable and understandable terms. At least we want to get him in a place where we can use him or find him if we ever need him. And the ways of God are incomprehensible and inscrutable. God is not going to do things exactly the way we would do them. Now, the human reasoning and logic of this text is that the reason why God has not brought an end to history and a redemption to society as he promised is that God is either unwilling to do that or he's impotent. He can't do it. He's either unwilling to do it or he can't do it. Here comes the author, Simon Peter, who understands what they're saying, and he says this. Now, don't, don't let this get out of your mind, folks. 
Um, God is not willing that any should perish. I mean, God is patient. He is so patient, he's willing to wait for a thousand years as though it were one day in order for people to be saved. That's God's way of doing it. And it's hard to hold that in our mind, the twin facts of the power and the patience of God, the fact that a part of his might is his mercy, that God doesn't do it exactly the way we would do it. I know how we would do it. We'd say, okay, why, we'll just, um, why, why doesn't God just wipe the earth clean of his enemies? I mean, kick the whole thing to pieces. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther said one time, he said, if, if I were God of this earth and people treated me the way they treat God, I'd kick the whole thing to pieces. That's, that's the way we would do it. Aren't you glad that's not the way God does it? Arnold Prater said he... He knew a guy who worked in a second barber chair where he always got a haircut. He says the most profane, vulgar man he'd ever heard, ever known. He said he must have had a fix, fixation against preachers because every time I came in, he just got profane and vulgar, you know. He said one day I missed him. And I asked my barber, I said, where's old vulgar, you know, there? He said, well, he said he, he's, he's seriously ill. He said, uh, they despaired of his life. They thought he was going to die. And he said, about six weeks after that, I was going into the post office, said Arnold Prater. He said, I heard somebody faintly call my name. And I, looked, I saw this man, uh, just, the, just the skeleton of him, white, pale man sitting in, in this passenger side of this car. Somebody had brought him down to the post office just to see the folks pass. He said, I walked over and the guy said, I've been real sick. I suppose you've missed me down at the barbershop. He said, I've been really sick. He said, I was in a coma. And he said, but I could hear what was going on. He said, and I could understand. He said, I heard the doctor tell my wife, I don't think he can live another hour. And he said, there in that coma, I prayed. He said, I'd never prayed before. He said, I prayed something like this. I said, God, whoever you are, I've never called on you before, but I need some help. Would you help me? And he said, uh, I don't know how to explain it. He said, but all of a sudden, lying in that coma, I knew that God was there and that everything was going to be all right. And then he said, he started, his, his mouth kind of, his chin kind of trembled and, I, and, and tears welled up in his eyes. And he said, Brother Prater, he said, isn't it amazing that, that for 60 years, I've kicked God in the face. And the first time, the first time I called his name, he came. God is not willing that any should perish. That's amazing and awesome. We'd like to be able to explain God and define him, but, but what we have to do is just bow in the awesomeness that the, that, the, that, that the Apostle Paul felt when he said, how deep are the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. And Halford Luckett said, that the greatest journey anyone can take is the journey from a question mark to an exclamation point. Question, who can know the mind of God and who is his counselor? Question mark, 
How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. Exclamation point. And we bow in the awesome reality that God cannot be explained or understood. And I suppose that the greatest mystery of all is the mystery of the incarnation. The Jews thought he was going to send them a king and he sent them a carpenter. And we've never gotten over the, the, the awesomeness of that, that when God wanted to reveal himself in his might and power, he did not come in the pomp of a king. He came in the garb of a workman. He came in weakness rather than strength. He came not as a sultan but a servant. He came not as a, carp, a, a conqueror but a carpenter. And, 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 and C.S. Lewis said, why didn't he land with some force? I mean, at least enough splendor to impress somebody, but he didn't. He came armed only with the might of a love that would not give in or break down. That's the inscrutable ways of God. Now, I'm here to tell you today that because God can neither be explained or defined, there are a lot of things that we're gonna have to do that are on the basis only of faith. Now, I know that God says to me a lot of times, and he's been speaking to me pretty heavy here lately, to, to do some things that, that don't make any sense to me. And, 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 and I, can't, I can't explain them, except that I know that God has spoken. Thus saith the Lord. And what I have to do is not to, to explain that or to rationalize it or get it reduced down to terms that I can understand and justify. I just have to do it. For really faith is obedience, is obedience to God's word in spite of or regardless of the consequences or the circumstances. And I believe that when a Christian or a church begins to live in that faith dimension, that just responds to God and yields to God and walks with God and, and operates on the basis of an obedient faith, and God is pleased and God blesses that. This text talks about the inscrutable ways of God. Secondly, this talks about, this text talks about the instructable will of God indestructible will of God. He says God is not willing, you see, that any should perish. What he means is that God has determined that everybody in this world should be saved. God's will is that all should be saved. Now you can stop praying this prayer, Lord save my husband if it's your will. You can quit praying this way. Lord, save my neighbor if it's your will. It is the will of God that everyone is saved. Now there are two New Testament words for will. One of them is a considered will. That is, I have considered it, I've thought it through, and this is my decision. It's like you walk around a car that you're about to buy and you kick the tires and you, you, know, you check it out and, and, and after a while you decide, that's the one I want. 
That's the considered will. There is another New Testament word for will. It's more of an impulse thing. Now it's the farmer that he uses here. He is saying God has walked around this and has considered this carefully and deliberately and it is his will that you are saved. Now immediately there comes into play with that, that statement, that marvelous doctrine that just baffles and boggles our mind, and that is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Now God has willed that every person be saved and yet he gives man the freedom to choose not to be. In my reading, I came across the story of the uh, entitled, When Mama Went to the Mountains. It was the story of a woman from Vermont who married this Kansan farmer and, and moved to Kansas. And she left these mountains and hills and trees of Vermont and went to Kansas where there's not a, a tree or woodpecker or a hill. And, and she was, and, and, and she was uh, homesick and they'd been married 12 years and she had not gotten to go back to Vermont and she was so homesick for the mountains. And finally her husband said, we don't have the money to go on vacation, but this is a three-story house. Just go up to the top of the house, the top floor, and play like you're in the mountains. And so she took a two-week vacation and moved up to the third floor of the house. The first day, she did what everybody does when they go to the mountains. She slept all day. The next day she read a book. The third day she came out on the balcony and was just kind of sitting there looking out over the vast plains of Kansas and, and seeing mountains and trees of Vermont and all of a sudden she heard her kids down on the, on the lawn below. And they were fussing and screaming and fighting and she just couldn't resist the urge so she peeked over the balcony and she saw this horrible sight. Her kids were unclean, and one of them's nose was snotty and hadn't been taken care of, and diapers were dirty. And she said immediately the impulse was to come down from the mountains and do something about it. Then she remembered she's on vacation. And so she just sat there and worried about it. And, and, and about, in about four days, she, she came to this thought, this, is, this must be what it's like, what God must feel as he looks down over this spinning earth and sinning humanity and sees man fighting and, and unclean and, 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 and acting bad, and she said, I thought this must be the way it is with God who has to resist the urge, the parental urge to, to, to overcome those barriers that he has imposed upon himself and get down there and change things. Now, now that illustration is a pretty good one for the free will of man, but it breaks down. And this is where it breaks down. God didn't just sit up there on the balconies of heaven and look down there and say, oh my, I wish I could do something. He invaded the arena of human life with his son and he did what was necessary to reveal his love and grace and redemption. I mean, he went to the limit for man's salvation. So that leaves us the other side of this great doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And I want you to listen to this carefully because what I'm about to say is relevant to what is happening in my own life. If God is not willing that any should perish, there must be two things that attend that one truth or statement. The first is this. 
that if God is not willing that any should perish, the winning of the perishing ought to be our first priority. I mean, it ought to be the total commitment of every person in this room. It ought to be the total commitment of every father that he win everyone in his house. It ought to be the total commitment of every young person, not just to go to California and do it, but to see that every person in his class knows the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be the commitment of every Christian in this room that he will allow nothing to interfere with this fact that since God's total commitment is the winning of the lost, such a commitment he has made that he gave his only son, that is my first priority. Now I want to read to you what the Apostle Paul, how important he thought it was. You, you don't have to turn to this. I just want you to listen to it. How important is it in the winning of the lost? Is it worth a total commitment? This is what he said. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, I came under the law, I did whatever was necessary. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, that is the Gentiles, to those who are without the law, I became as without the law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. Three point sermon right out of that. I'll just give you the points, not the poem. Point one, not everybody is gonna be saved. Point two, some people will be saved. Point three, the winning of those who will be saved ought to be my first priority. I ought to give up, I ought to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes that God's considered will would be done. Second thing we can say about this is this, that if God has made a total commitment to the winning of the lost, I mean, he'll go to limits to save you. He's not gonna let you go go to hell without a struggle. I mean, he's going to send the hounds of heaven against you. If you're here lost today, he's going to send preachers to your house, prayers to your door. He's going to send the hounds of heaven after you because he's not going to let you go to hell without a struggle, without a combat, without a sacrifice on his part. He's committed to it. Now, if he's that committed to the winning of the lost, if he has committed all the resources of heaven to the winning of the unsaved, and I believe he has, then he has committed those resources to the soul winner. Now, I want you to watch this. If God's commitment is to the winning of the lost, such a commitment that he has put all the resources of heaven behind it, even his own son's death, he put that investment into it, then all of the resources of God are at the disposal of the soul winner. It's called the anointing for evangelism. 
Now, anointing means to be set apart for sacred service. When Samuel anointed Saul, they put oil on him. That was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And that oil came down over his body, symbolizing that he was covered with the Holy Spirit, set apart for God's purpose for Saul. When he anointed David, same thing. He poured oil on his head. Samuel did Samuel. That oil, that oil came down, symbolical, that he was being covered with the Holy Spirit covered for the purpose of doing God's will. And when Jesus stood in the New Testament in Nazareth, took the scroll and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and told what he was coming to do. He was saying, God has anointed me, set me apart and has made all the resources of heaven available to me for the winning of the lost in this world. And I'm here to tell you, those same resources are available to you if you'll win the lost to win the lost. And when the anointing of God comes upon man and the Holy Spirit covers him and he is obedient to the voice of God and he goes out and shares the gospel, let me tell you what, I can tell you from my own experience and I'm no different than anybody else, when you go out in the power of God, those to whom you witness are like little children. Now, that, that's to say that the will of God is indestructible. You can't defeat God's will. Now you can thwart it and you can limit it, but you can't defeat it. There's one last thought that this text, are you still with me? Shake your head like this. Everybody's here. Everybody's here. It has to do, this text has to do with the inscrutable ways of God, the indestructible will of God. Now watch this. It has to do with the irresponsible attitude of man. Now I want to say two things about the irresponsible attitude of man. One of them has to do with an impatience with God and the other has to do with an impertinence with things or concerning things. The irresponsible attitude of man is an impatience toward God. Where is the sign of his coming? Why didn't God do something? Why didn't God, why didn't God do something? I mean, we've given him six months and nothing's happened. Why, why didn't God do something? That's the irresponsible attitude of man. Now, these scoffers, you see, were not just the heathen. They, they, were, the un, they, they were the believers. I mean, people within the church. And they were saying, okay, if, if, if all that I have said about God is really true, why isn't, why isn't something happening? And what that means? It means that a responsible attitude of the believer is an attitude of absolute waiting and trust. Didn't you love the words of that song? I've never, I, I never listened to those words before, but I listened to them today. And, and God spoke to me in that song that, that the uh, ensemble sang. Like a willow in the wind, bend me. Like, like, a, like a treasure in your hand, spend me. Like a letter stamped with love, send me. <laughs> what a marvelous message in song. And then, then the quartet comes. You think God didn't put all this together? Of course he did. Then the quartet comes and sings about the attitude of little children. Make me young again. 
Help me to trust you again. Help me to wait upon you again. And the whole call to worship was based upon waiting upon the Lord and leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging Him and letting Him direct our path. It means I'm just going to wait on God if it's a thousand years. For time is always in the present for Him. And the prophet said, Thus said the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved and in trust and quietness is your strength but you would not I wish you hadn't had to say that last part but you would not and what the prophet was saying to Judah was the way to be saved is to repent and rest in the Lord salvation God's ability and in Trust and quietness, there is strength. And any attitude that is not characterized with that is an irresponsible impatience with God. And then he says that the second irresponsible attitude that was alive and well in that day was an impertinence concerning things. You have any idea why he, why he went ahead and, and included verse 10? You want to look at that? Verse 10. He said, but. Now, now, that word but connects what he's about to say with what is said before. What he said before is that God is patient, willing to wait, but. The day will come, now watch, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. I'm going to do a little Greek word work with you here. The word war, there, roar there means, is a word that means the, the whistle that an arrow makes that's headed straight to its target, like, like that. One night I, I woke up from a dream. I, I dream all the time. Some of my dreams I could share, but some I can't. But some of the wildest things in the world I dream. One night I dreamed that the world was coming to an end. Everybody was fleeing for safety. And I heard this sound, like air going out of a tire. And I woke up scared to death, woke my wife up. About six months later, I had a guy preaching my church in Fort Worth on the prophetic passages from 2 Peter. And he came to this verse. I was sitting on the front row. And he said, that word means this. Like the sound of an arrow that's whistling toward its target. He said, there will be a time, there is coming a time when it will happen like that. Notice another word. He says the elements. What is he talking about? He's talking about air and fire, land and water. The elements, everything that is, will be destroyed. The word destroyed means to be dissolved. It means to go up in a puff of smoke. And the word intense heat means a fierce and violent flame. Now, now this, this is not really um, something that you like to hear about just before lunch. But, but, but what he's saying is that that what's going to happen 
is really not beyond belief in an age of nuclear fission, is it? I mean, that's not really uh, absolutely beyond belief. The absolute ultimate Hiroshima is possible. For what he's saying in this verse is this, now get this please, that this present world and all that's in it is not designed to last forever. And if you have placed, if you're putting all of your energy and all of your devotion and your priorities upon an earth, an element that's going to just go up in a puff of smoke, it's an irresponsible attitude on your part. For it's not designed to be here long. So what he's saying is this, fellas, while you're trusting in the patience of God who is totally committed to your salvation, remember, all of the time and the energy and the love that you have put on things are going to go up in a puff of smoke. The Edmonton, Albert, the Edmonton Oilers have just won the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup is the World Series in professional hockey. It's the Super Bowl of professional hockey. It's the NBA championship of NHL professionalism. They won the Stanley Cup. The owner and the coach of the Edmonton Oilers is a, is a wealthy man. He is, he is independently wealthy. He coaches for fun. In his garage is this statement, a sign in his garage so he can see it every day. He who dies with the most toys is the winner. I've never heard of a more irresponsible attitude toward life than that. He who dies with the most toys is the winner. What this text says is, there will be a day when there are no more toys and you're the loser. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in the awesome reality that you are a sovereign God, that man was never meant to explain or even intellectually comprehend. And your ways are not comprehensible. Thus, you invite us to a childlike faith. And we thank you that the total commitment of all of heaven is to the salvation of every lost person on planet Earth and in Durant, America. And I pray this morning that we will repent and rest 
in you for salvation, for the fulfillment of life. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Thou three invitations. The first invitation is for you to respond to the grace invitation of God. That is, to come and receive his gift of eternal life. You say, well, I don't understand it. That's all right. You're not supposed to. You don't have to. God told me this recently that I led to Christ. He said, I've been wanting to be a Christian. I have no education. I didn't understand it. Isn't it great that he didn't have to? Just by faith, he called on Jesus to be saved. I ask you to do that same thing right now if you're lost. Understanding that God's not going to let you alone until you're saved, until you breathe your last breath. Second invitation this morning is for you to come and join the church. God has led you to be a part of this fellowship. You've sensed that in your heart. God has told you. You know it. If that's, that's the case, that's when we want you to come. Or to come this morning to say, Pastor, I have, I have not been about the main things. But I want to commit my life to the reaching, to the winning of unsaved people, to the putting of priority where priorities belong. Would you do it while we stand, while we sing, you come. Help us sing and then come.